You're listening to the Togetherings, hosted by the Alaska Humanities Forum. Hello and welcome to the Togetherings, hosted by the Alaska Humanities Forum. I am Amanda and I'm here with Simonetta. Hi, Simonetta. Hi. Today's conversation is in partnership with the Alaska Center and it's about representation in Alaska, questions on leadership, equity, and inclusion. It's one conversation in a series of three. And today we're going to explore representation at the decision-making table. A few words about our partner for this series of conversations, the Alaska Center is a nonprofit organization here in Alaska and their mission is to engage, empower, and elect Alaskans to stand up for clean air and water, healthy communities, and strong democracy. And before we start today, we would like to acknowledge that we are recording this conversation in Anchorage or from Anchorage, Alaska on the Nina land. And today to talk about uh, representation at the decision-making table, we have two guests connected with us, uh, Chanel Afken and Joshua Albezar-Brensetter. Th uh, thank you for being here and hello. Hi, thanks for having us. <laughs> thanks for having me. So Chanel, uh, would you like to tell us about you, about who you are? Sure. Um, my name's Chanel Afkan. I also go by Govangsach <laughs> with my family members um, because I'm Yupik. I'm Yupik from the village of Nunamikwa, Alakanak, and Imanak, that sort of like Delta region. Now I live in Anchorage and I work for the Alaska Center. Thanks. As a community organizer. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, Joshua, what about you? Um, I'm Joshua Albeza Brandstetter. I am a Filipino-American filmmaker, photographer, and writer living in Anchorage, Alaska. I, I consider myself a storyteller and activist. A lot of my work has been focused on either cultural preservation, uh, personal identity, or uh, social current social issues. Um, I am part of a artist team called Absolute Zero which was recently awarded a 2020 Rasmussen Fellowship and is a multidisciplinary arts project that is uplifting survivors, or how I say, like to say it, uh, champions of uh, abuse and domestic violence throughout our community. And we are doing that through the creation of both a documentary uh, film series or film and sonic sculptures that we are coordinating with the communities we are building it in to use in situ clay from those communities to celebrate Alaskans. Thanks. Uh, exciting having you uh, both here. First things we like to ask our guests is um, to tell us a bit about their connection to the topic at hand. And today we're talking about representation at the decision-making table. What comes to mind for you guys first when you hear this topic? Um, and Joshua, we'll start with you if that's okay. Um, what comes to mind for me immediately uh, is two things. Uh, one, that we, living in Anchorage specifically, I think that we are a rich, diverse community. And I've been told that we're not the most diverse city in the country, but I don't know how that's possible because we have over a hundred languages in our school district. I was looking at the demographic breakdown for Anchorage and it's really incredible that uh, our minority demographic will be just our diverse minority demographics are currently under 50% of the population. That's gonna be changing very soon. And I, 
love that. I absolutely love that. But one thing that makes me sad is to see that we are so richly diverse, but we don't have a lot as we, it doesn't seem like we have representation for how large that demographic, those demographics are. And I, my second thing I think about is how we uh, did have an opportunity for that. Um, there was someone who I supported who was running for mayor, George Martinez. And I was really honored that we are now having minorities who are attempting to step into positions of leadership for our community. And um, there are a lot of great leaders in our community that support the causes of our different demographics. But I do, I am excited for the day that those leaders look like us too. Chanel, what comes up for you when you think about representation at the decision-making table? I think about this really big push and pull conversation uh, I've had with friends and family, like, should we get involved within the system um, of power that has been historically, like, taking power from us? <laughs> and um, should we lend our time and our efforts into trying to make this system less harmful for us? Or <laughs> should we like just not participate at all? <laughs> um, so what's in my mind right now is like, sure, way back in the day, Alaska used to be run extremely hyper-locally. <laughs> like tribes would decide what they need and tribes would decide what they need for their own people. There would have to be inherent representation for folks that, like the people that decide my day-to-day -day would be people like me. <laughs> and with like settler colonialism, <laughs> that's just not the case today. So what I'm thinking with representation at the decision-making table <laughs> is in order to survive here where we are now <laughs> and thrive and reduce as much harm as possible we do have to participate and do our best with what we've got. Chanel I wonder if I could dig in a little bit to your own journey with this as much as you are comfortable sharing but what has this arc looked like for you you know going through is this a system that I want to put energy into or do I want to set this aside and focus on something else? And if you could take us through a little bit of your own thinking with this journey. Mm, my family, <laughs> they're like a family of educators. Um, oh. My mom's a principal and my dad is a history and English teacher, believe it or not. <laughs> Before them, my grandmother too has like, has taught a lot of my um, aunts and uncles. She's a teacher out in the village. Growing up, you would hear like, we need more native X, Y, Z, doctors, teachers, airline pilots, <laughs> folks that'll stay at home <laughs> and um, love it there. <laughs> but it was a never ending amount of responsibilities to live up to. Do <laughs> You know what I mean? the education system at home to try to get to get all of us little <laughs> little native kids to these roles it was fairly western centric like standardized testing the 
examples in the books were like Mary, Jane, um, etc. <laughs> they went to the grocery store and bought apples. Our grocery store didn't have apples, <laughs> not often. <laughs> so I, the thing I'm trying I'm trying to communicate here that um, my family has a deep like investment in Western structures and trying to make them more applicable for native peoples so that we can get access to opportunities that we haven't had before. And I was wondering as a kid, like whether or not these educational opportunities would actually make me happy. Like, would they lead me away from my village or would they allow me to grow the opportunities I have there at home? <laughs> it started out that way. <laughs> and I still haven't found a happy medium. I did end up leaving home and I'm not back in the village right now, although I one day hope to return <laughs> or to at least help from here. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm like <laughs> rambling now. I'm trying to think of a good happy note to fall on. <laughs> but I like your I, answers. Oh, <laughs> thanks. I so appreciate this window into the complexity, right? That that's behind all of this. Um, and also your honesty. Thank you for starting us off in such a powerful way. Thank you. I see you nodding. Joshua, while she was talking, uh, were there things coming up for you as you were listening? Yeah, I, well, I think Chanel actually ended on a really interesting topic. You talked about uh, wondering if you had to leave your community to get, you know, to do your work or if there was a way you could do it within your community. I'm wondering there, so if we have these Western systems that you talked about not being a our communities not being allowed to govern themselves and how that affected how our rural communities developed, which it wasn't even the system of how people lived wasn't even rural communities where you had to stay here. So like Western culture comes, it tells you, you have to stay here now. You have to have a town. It has to be like this. And then they don't allow them to govern themselves. And then now today you talk about wanting to, your family being heavily involved in these Western structures and you wanting to add to and wondering, should we get involved in trying to even get involved? And it looks like when you become involved, it takes away from your community. Is that how you feel about it? That it's like, it takes you from your community and that even to become involved to make things better for your community is a detriment to your community because you're being pulled away from it. I was wondering if that's how you feel about that. It's it just seemed really interesting to me. So I don't want to make a dichotomy if there isn't one, <laughs> but it certainly felt that way for me. <laughs> so rewind, uh, my school is like, when I was growing up, it was really small. It was built for 111 students. Um, I maxed the amount of, amount of math classes I could take with teacher support um, by middle school. And I had to go to boarding school. And then from there, I was like, hmm, uh, great colleges are here, but um, let's say I wanted to become a representative or become a part of the state uh, administration. I felt like I would have a significantly better chance by going to like an Ivy League. <laughs> um, so I did, I, well, it's not an Ivy League. I went to Stanford University where there is a strong native community. 
uh, the Alaska Native community could be stronger. Um, and from there, I just felt disconnected and <laughs> sad <laughs> and like I wasn't really, I wasn't really helping in any way that mattered. And I know that there must be other like village kids like me that um, have felt the same way. So the, <laughs> there's like a cyclical thing where in order to get more access to these sorts of opportunities at home, these sorts of rights that we should have, we need to be inside of these systems to say like, this is what we need and this is how we need it. <laughs> but in order to do that, like, <laughs> we gotta leave, <laughs> gotta leave a little bit. You know what I mean? I think that really strongly ties into how like on a microcosm and on a smaller level here in Anchorage, we have communities that are underprivileged that don't have access to the same resources. I think especially in our education system is a great example. I mean, our, our schools are funded by the neighborhoods they exist within. And so we natural, that naturally creates a situation in which we have a cycle, as Chanel said, where you have kids in underprivileged neighborhoods and their schools get fewer resources. And it just perpetuates the cycle where there's a separation between the haves and the have nots. And I think a really good example is uh, my kids got into a really good charter school and I'm thankful for that charter school, but that charter school is located in a neighborhood where they do have a lot more resources than, than some of the schools that are closer to them. And I think about how, you know, I, 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 I looked it up and that school has like a, I think Anchorage is 54% or 56% white, but that school had in 2019, when they did the last census, it was 70% white. And it's, I see that and I look at my kids and I'm like, worth the reason it's not like 75% white or whatever. <laughs> and I think about like, I also wonder like, am I perpetuating Am I, am I perpetuating this segregation, but, or am I fighting it by having my kids go to the school? Cause I wanted them to have a really good education, but maybe should they be in a, in a school where it doesn't have as many resources, but it's more diverse so they can celebrate their heritage. And it's not that there aren't people at that school that aren't minorities, but you feel it. You feel that you don't, that you're the outsider and that you don't quite belong there. And I see that in my kids where they feel like, they don't connect as much with these kids because a lot of these kids are, it's a charter school, but a lot of them are from the local neighborhood. And I think about like, how do we, this seems like a microcosm of my community and how do we change that? Like, do we drive a bus up to that charter school and be like, now there, 50, 50, <laughs> no more 70%. What do we do? But we have these systems and I think about how I love our community and almost, almost no one here will say I am a racist. I've seen some articles recently for some people who wanted to be community leaders, which was very questionable. They didn't win though, so that's good. Um, but we say that, but I don't think it's enough to say I don't see color or I'm not racist. You have to be anti-racist and it, you're either anti-racist actively fighting systems that 
had existed for hundreds of years, or you're okay with it. And one of the best examples, I think, is our education system. You can be the nicest person in the world to minorities, to me, to Chanel. You can be the nicest person in the world to us, but you are still participating in a system in which kids in underprivileged neighborhoods have fewer educational resources and so are having a harder time creating, finding new opportunities because they live in a system that perpetuates this racist segregation of our neighborhoods that has existed for hundreds of years, that was very purposefully created in order to separate the white neighborhoods from the others, from the rest of us. And so I don't think there's a middle ground where you can say, I, don't, I just don't see color. It doesn't matter because you are still benefiting from a system that separates us by color. I, and I think we have to stop that. We have to break it down by mixing things up. We have to purposefully mix things up. And it's so, cause it affects everything, not just our education, it affects our law enforcement. We recently established a new police chief, deputy, a police chief, yeah, standing police chief here in Anchorage. Um, Kenneth McCoy, our first black police chief in Anchorage. And that's wonderful. That's really awesome that we're doing that because I mean, I'm working on a project right now about a young Nupiak man who was shot and killed in 2017 in Fairbanks, Cody Dalton Air. And I, you know, the Fairbanks PD, which is largely white, I just listen to the people and they talk about it, Cody. And after I started interviewing people, people just started saying about how they grew up and they were afraid growing up, how their parents were like, here's how you act around police and how you hear this, this dialogue about how they talk about people that don't work. They don't say like natives are the problem, but they'll say things like there are people that just, they just don't want to work or they're just alcoholics or they're just lazy. And you, and that's, those are the words they use, but they're talking about natives. And we have to fight that because the native population is 15% of Alaska, but over 30% of the police shootings. And why is that? I think a lot of it's because of these things that fly by when we're kids, these words we use, these ways we characterize people as, well, they just don't want to work. They just want to hand out. But what you're really talking about is kids in underprivileged neighborhoods who are predominantly one color or predominantly not white. And that affects how our cops see people or how they don't see people because they don't see us. They see lazy people or alcoholics or trouble. And then it's not surprising when they treat us differently or when they're, when they're more likely to pull out their gun because they don't see us. And that starts in our schools. I think you brought up something really interesting because um, when we think about representation, uh, it's just not merely and solely in the political arena. It's just at the police department or other positions that hold power and uh, lots of responsibilities. It's interesting to be aware of that as well. 
and not just what happens necessarily in the political arena. Why do you think specifically in Anchorage in Alaska, race is an issue at the representation table, at the decision-making table? Joshua, you brought to mind this, these like <laughs> two words that I have been throwing around. <laughs> uh, okay, let's say we're at the state capitol building to go back to a political example. Some teens <laughs> who can't vote yet are in the building itself and um, they're trying to advocate for something they care about. But the people that represent them that are from their districts, from their uh, state and house areas, they don't look like them, they don't think like them, they don't talk like them, they don't have any of the experiences that they lived. It can be so intimidating, so difficult to try to break through those social norms that is a disconnect between what these teens are trying to communicate and what the like senator or representative is understanding. <laughs> um, so to give a couple of examples, uh, let's say senator and representative within the Capitol building, you're supposed to say that um, in front of their names in order for them to like listen to you. Another social norm is <laughs> always to take a meeting with a staff member um, to stay on message with news reporters who are there <laughs> asking you about your things. Otherwise, these like teens can get tricked or misrepresented or misunderstood. Um, these are three things I've been, <laughs> these are social norms that like they're developed from a white Western culture that <laughs> not many people are explaining to us, <laughs> you know? So if there isn't people who are like us <laughs> at that table already, then the systems of power that decide life or death, resources or no resources, insurance or no insurance, <laughs> they're complicit in the institutions of discrimination or they're complacent in them. That's what I think. I, I think that's an excellent point. And yeah, you, you have someone, a minority that gets elected or like in a corporate position gets the position. And so now they're at the table and what happens? Immediately, everyone thinks, oh, they were the diversity hire. The point is, as soon as you show up, you are automatically suspect when no one questions why all these white men are already at the table. No one questions that. Oh, well, they, they, it was on some merit or whatever. But you are instantly questioned. You, it is instantly wondered, was, was that some kind of affirmative action? And that right there, it's, it's these things, how we are, as a, as a community, we have been trained to think that. My, I, I, I have a friend, my friend was talking about how, uh, She's, she's not even, she's white, she's not even a minority, but she was at a meeting for this, this corporate job and everyone was introducing themselves and she was sitting in between two men. Um, one, she didn't know before, the other was a colleague who she knew really well and they were going around the table and so her colleague introduced himself and then as soon as his colleague was done, the guy that she didn't know started introducing himself 
he just assumed that she was, she didn't need to introduce herself, <laughs> whether because he thought she was there for taking notes or what, I don't know. Everyone else at the table introduced themselves and then he just skipped over her. But her colleague was like, oh, hey, no, actually, um, uh, we forgot. She needs it. She needs to introduce herself too. And then the other person apologized, but like it was already ingrained in him that all the men were supposed to be at the table, but surely this person who was right next to him was not, was not on the same level. He just jumped to that. And it's, that's not even that. And that's just for, she, she was white too, but she was a woman. And so there's this assumption that anyone that doesn't look like a white man, that either you don't belong there or yeah, you're there on because of some, some charity and we have to fight that. And how do we fight that? Well, we, we need people in positions of leadership who look like us and because it changes the mentality. And then people say, well, shouldn't we just be hiring people on merit? It's like, well, you, what, you think they're not also qualified? The white guy doesn't have to prove his qualifications, but all of us do. We have to prove that it's not just a diversity hire. I'm also good, guys. No, that in itself is the problem. That, they, that You're saying, I'm not racist, but like, I want it to be on merit. It's like, no, that is the thing. You're, not, you're, seeing, you're questioning me because I'm not white, because I don't meet the standard. And the only way we do that is by filling out these boards filling out whatever these tables are, seating people who look like us, because we have to break down hundreds of years of these norms. And that's what, I mean, that's what equity is. But I don't know how long it's going to take to get there, but we need, that looks like a black police chief. That looks like an indigenous mayor, a Filipino American senator, just to show people that, hey, it's normal. And there are plenty that qualify for the job. <laughs> it isn't about, well, we're just hiring, you should just hire the best person for the job. Oh no, there are plenty. There are plenty of us that worked our butts off to get where we are, to be, that have more than enough qualifications. But we need that diversity to change the perspective. We need police officers that see minorities and give them the same accommodations they're giving white people that see black people on the street as just being like a white person on the street instead of wondering what trouble he's getting into because we all know that there's an issue there we were all here last year you both referenced um you know, having representatives who look like you or representatives who are like me, for example, I really love to dig into what that might look and feel like if there are certain types of, for example, lived experiences that you feel should be required if someone's going to represent you or certain characteristics or what this might look like, someone you would feel comfortable being represented by. Does that type of person exist? You're asking us if that type of person exists? Yeah, I think I'd really like to know more because you've both talked about, I mean, we know that, for example, in the mayoral election, what, 12 of 13 candidates were white? 
most were men. Uh, most have a certain, um, you know, have experience in Anchorage and not anywhere else in Alaska. And this kind of thing gets me thinking about, are there, like, what is missing at that decision-making table? Certainly people of color, certainly people who have grown up differently from the standard politician, but what else? I mean, there's so many things missing is where I'm trying to go with this question. And what might some of those things be? The audacity. <laughs> Tell me more. We had a mayoral candidate who had been at the ground level of putting together, who worked with the mayor, the previous mayor for years, had been there on the ground level of putting together legislation and had gone through the entire process, the political process, mayoral, political, municipal process, and had that experience. And it didn't matter compared to men who had no political experience. There were men who did, but men also who didn't, who had, didn't even have business experience. Maybe they could fly a plane. That was it. And yet no one questions that person because he has the audacity, because white men have the audacity, because white men don't question their, their role in society. And in fact, they ha are happy to tell you how, they're, they're happy to tell you what they deserve and how they should be treated. But I think a lot of, a lot of minorities, a lot of people that look like me, half are expected to approach it differently, or we feel we have to approach it differently. We, we feel like we have to be, we can't be angry. We can't have that, that audacity. We have to be humble. We have to not speak up, you know, and get and fit in and to get accepted. But like so much of that mentality of conforming to white norms, to, to whether everything from how we speak to wearing a tie, which is like the dumbest thing in the world. <laughs> it's like stupid. <laughs> Put a noose around my neck. Um, having, to, having to dress that way, we do all of these accommodations where we give up parts of ourselves to be accepted in this society. But why? Because it's expected of us, because we're told that's, that's professional, because that's cultured, or that's civilized, or that's educated. But none of those things really are. It's just made up. Who, some idiot thought a guy should put a tie around his neck and that was professional. <laughs> some white guy thought that. And I was like, and the rest of us were just like, okay, I guess. I guess we'll do that now. But there's no real reason it has to be that way. But in the same way, when a minority, when a Puerto Rican man who's more than qualified says, sure, I'm going to run for mayor. I'm going to try to make things better in my community. I'd like to use the marijuana tax money and put it into sports for underprivileged neighborhoods and talks about real practical things that are going to improve our community as a whole, but especially for groups that can most benefit from a new baseball field. And then people say, I don't know, I don't know if he's qualified. And then we got a guy that can like, has what? What does he have on his record? What does he have in his portfolio? And no one questions him because he stands up tall and speaks with confidence. The confidence of a man who knows he's backed by 400 years of colonialism. Mediocrity with exceptional confidence.
and we just go along with it. Oh, you can chime in if you want. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I could talk about it forever. I get angry about it. We should, you know what? We have we talk about how we have to we have to be we can't be the angry, the we can't be we have to be the model. My case, we have to be the model minority. You're the good minority. Asians are the good minority. And what does that get us? Angelo Quinto was a Filipino American man in California whose mother called for a wellness check. So there's also a mental wellness issue there. And the police showed up and they kneeled on him. It didn't matter that he was a model minority. It didn't matter that it was for a wellness check. And I think of the parallels to the story I'm working on now for Cody. It doesn't matter if you're the good minority because all that work can go out the window in seconds. So we, sh we should be angry. We should have that confidence because it doesn't matter if you put on the tie. It gets you, it gets your shit. <laughs> Pardon my language. So it just, it, it makes me so angry. <sighs> because all these structures that we're told we have to live by to rise up, they're not here to help you rise up. They're here to keep you down. So we're told as minorities to be good model minorities and to not get angry or to be, or otherwise, you know, it's, it's the same thing for women in corporate jobs. You know, you, you get angry and they just tell you, you, you know, oh, she's a real bitch. The guy gets angry and it's like, oh, he's, he's a hot shot. He's a go-getter. I just feel like those systems don't hold anymore because we're the minorities now, but that's not going to be that way for much longer. And I think it's time we started talking with a little more anger, being a little angrier, a little more confident. Because when we have a more than qualified mayor, mayor who talks about, I'm gonna run a good clean campaign and he does, and everyone ignores him. He was qualified and everyone ignored him. I don't, I think it's, I think we can have the confidence of a completely unqualified mayoral candidate. Maybe that's what we need. The caucasity. That's what <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> the caucasity. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh, but that is oh. good. <laughs> That's good shit, Joshua. <laughs> um <laughs> I wanna like talk to you for a second. <laughs> so much of what you said like sparked. I I'm sorry to take over. <laughs> um so much of what you said. Like, it reminded me of a couple of quotes that uh, I don't exactly remember the details of, but y'all know Elizabeth Pradovich, like, <laughs> yeah, primo um, human rights advocate, uh, <laughs> part of the Alaska Native Sisterhood. She was like, mm, to the Senate, I think, asking you to give me equal rights implies that you have the rights and you can give me them. <laughs> but like, instead, we have to demand that you stop denying them to me and to all the people that like deserve them. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, <laughs> question mark. Uh, she said something similar, like I'm not asking for favors as a woman. I just ask that you keep your feet off of our necks. <laughs> so when it's like, what's missing at this, at this table for representation, what's missing is like allowing us to thrive, <laughs> you know? 
the question isn't like, why do we need people of different races here? It's why not have them, <laughs> you know? <laughs> why not have us <laughs> show up? <laughs> we can show up, we can be angry, we can live without outside of this like norm of ties and dresses and uh, these unspoken social like rules that keep us away from power, essentially. <laughs> what's missing for the people who are in power for those systems that allow power is like just allowing us to be there. <laughs> um, just having a cultural shift that doesn't keep us down. Yeah, exactly. That's, it made me think of when a white man comes to the table, he has to prove to everyone why he's better than all the other white men. When a minority comes to the table, we have to prove why we should even be allowed there. We have to prove why we get to breathe, why we get to exist. And that's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. The question is not whether or not that man, the one minority man on the mayoral ballot, why he deserved to run or why he deserved to be elected. It's why there weren't more. Why was there only one? Apparently, I listen to those debates. Apparently anyone can run for mayor. And I'm not just ragging on that one guy this time. <laughs> I listened to like a bunch of them. But I think that ties into a lot of us don't step up to the plate because you know how you're going to be questioned. But also like, again, going back to the schools in which there are schools that are predominantly white and have the resources to tell those kids they can be anything. And then we have schools that live, that exist in predominantly not white neighborhoods that don't have the resources and they can't tell those kids that you can be anything. They can't show them that. They can barely stay open. A lot of those schools are just trying to teach those kids enough to stay out of jail, to get a good job. And that affects your mentality. It, it molds our, our black men, it molds our Pacific Islander men, our indigenous men, and not men and women, to not think they're capable of the same things that white people are. It sets our sights lower. So we don't even think of signing up to run for mayor. We don't think I could be a chief of police. We don't think I can start a business. We don't think we can be those things. But how many young black, how many black boys think they can be president now? How many black girls want to grow up to be president now? How many South Asian women, girls think, yeah, I can be president someday? Just because you see it, that's the power of seeing it. I think about how when I was growing up, you know, there's so many great movies I loved. I loved Indiana Jones, but Indiana Jones didn't look like me. I love Star Wars, but, uh, same actor, Han Solo didn't look like me. <laughs> they don't look like you. What, what did I have? I had short round. <laughs> the guy who was sliding in the life raft with Indiana Jones screaming his head off. That's what I had. And you start to think that that's your role. But what if Indiana Jones was Filipino? What if he was Yupik? What if he was black? Some kid's going to watch that and think I can beat that. And that's important. It's something that might seem so small, but it has so much power. 
And so I applaud our mayoral candidate who ran. I applaud George Martinez for running because he ran with integrity and he didn't win, but there are kids that saw that and they're gonna think they have a shot. We need to change how our mentality is. We need to see ourselves and believe we can be more so we can look a little higher, keep our heads a little higher and set our sights on something a little higher. My dog knows I'm being a little emotional right now, so she came over. <laughs> We're starting to come close to the end of this Togetherings episode. Um, and a question we like to always ask our, our guests toward the end is, what's one question you would like to leave listeners with? What's something you would like listeners to leave this asking themselves or others? Um, Joshua and Chanel, what are questions you would like listeners to leave asking today? Um, There's so many places where leaders are, schools, uh, the police station, <laughs> our municipality, and in every facet, I am wondering from the leaders that are there now, like, what do you see is keeping <laughs> keeping a more representative leadership from rising? And then <laughs> for our very diverse representative community, I'm wondering what could embolden you to be able to step up to that table and be vulnerable? <laughs> Earlier, I talked about uh, my friend who was at, at the table at her work. And all of us, but especially our white audience that's listening, there will be a table that you are already at in your life. Who can you bring to that table? And then how can you make sure that they aren't passed over? Because the, and they will be, if, if you guys don't speak up, do something about it. What can you do? What is your table? And who's your friend? Who's your colleague that needs you to make sure they're not passed over? This episode was funded by Why It Matters, Civic and Electoral Participation Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils and funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.